We begin today a new study in the book of Luke, which, Lord willing, will take us all the way into 2025. Luke's a long book. The Gospel of Luke has been called the loveliest book in the world. Scottish theologian James Denny was once asked if he could recommend a good biography about the life of Jesus, to which he replied, have you tried the one that Luke wrote? (laughs) If we want to know about Jesus, we should start here. We should start here, God's word. Let us first start by asking, who is Luke? Some think he was a Gentile. Others say he might have been a Hellenized Jew. Whatever the case, Luke is author. Colossians 4.14 calls him the beloved physician, which is perhaps why his gospel focuses on the physical infirmities, on the sympathy of us regular humans, our physical needs. It's clear that Luke loved people, and it's clear that he loved Jesus because Jesus loved people. You can see that clearly in his gospel. So Luke wrote it. Why did he write it? We know from the very first few verses he addresses it to this guy named Theophilus who's given the title of Most Excellent. I always think of that stupid movie, Bill and Ted, you know, Most Excellent Theophilus, you know. And so it's a title given most likely to a Roman official. And so he's probably a believer and he wants to know. I mean, his name itself means friend or lover of God. So his name could have been a title as well. But it it really is written to all of us because if you're a believer, if you are a friend and lover of God, then it's for you. It's for us today. It's a gospel for Gentiles. It has uh, many, many things that are for those unfamiliar with Jewish culture. It's a gospel of prayer. Luke shows that at every key moment, he mentions that Jesus is praying. He's constantly praying. It's a gospel with a special place for women. We have Mary, Elizabeth, Anna, vivid pictures of Martha, Mary, Mary Magdalene. It's a gospel of praise. In Luke, the phrase praising God occurs more often than all the New Testament combined. It's a universal gospel. It's for all people. The Samaritans are welcomed. The Gentiles are elevated. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is pictured time and time again as a friend of sinners. And finally, he is a historian. He makes it very clear. It's an orderly account heavily researched eyewitness testimony and he writes it so that we might have certainty about the things that we have been taught he was a trusted companion of paul and luke most certainly would have interviewed all the key figures of the early church you can you can almost picture him sitting down with an older mary and she she gives to him the things that she treasured in her heart those memories of her sweet son jesus His Greek is very good. His dating of events is helpful. His naming of key individuals is invaluable. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke has given us an orderly account for ordinary people about an extraordinary God. In other words, it's the loveliest book in the world. So follow along with me, if you will, in your Bibles as we read today Luke 1, 1 through 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Heavenly Father, would you bless the reading of your word today? Would you apply it to our hearts? This story which we've read, many of us have read hundreds and hundreds of times, Lord. Would you show us something new today that we might see Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life? We pray this in his name. Amen. Many years ago, I was on choir tour. I was in a choir, youth choir with Nevin Zimmerman. He would lead that. And he had taken us this time to the JFK Museum in Dallas. And if you don't know about that, it's the building where Oswald allegedly shot JFK. Now, before we went, I honestly, I I thought it was going to be one of these boring places that Nevin dragged us to like he always did, you know. (laughs) And, uh, And so I get there and I'm thinking, oh, great. And the highlight of the museum is going to be the window. you got to get to the window. You're going to go up to the window where JFK was, you know, where Oswald was there and he shot JFK. But you don't get to the window until the very last stop on the tour. And I thought, why do I have to go through all this other stuff before I get to the window? Well, 30 minutes of the tour had passed and all of a sudden I had forgotten about the window. It was fascinating. I was learning all this this stuff about JFK. The tension of his life began to build. Who was he? Why was he shot? Who was Oswald? What What did JFK do as a president? What type of person was he really? And then we got to that window, and all these kids were there, and you could hear a pin drop. And we were silent, 
And we were on holy ground now. This was, this was the moment we had been waiting for, and we dare not say a thing. There was gravity in that situation. Well, today we are at the ground floor with Luke, <laughs> and he's working us up to the manger. He's going to show us, he's preparing us for our Savior. As we ponder the opening chapters, again, these chapters we've read many, many times in our life, he's showing us how God marches ever onward to victory. A small little band of elect peoples, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Anna, Simeon, a couple others. Who are these people? We want to get to Jesus. What do these people matter? And so God is merging the ordinary with the extraordinary. He's taking the natural things and he's merging them with the supernatural things. It's an orderly account that Luke presents to us all. And he wants us to be assured, to have certainty, and then to believe. First, let us not miss the tension, the buildup here. He begins the story of Jesus with an account of the forerunner. The forerunner is John the Baptist. The life of Jesus is the most pivotal moment in all of human history. Everything before it was aimed at it, and everything that came after it was looking back to it. God is a God of history. He weaves the past and the future together like a master artist. And that renders no single human life, no single moment meaningless or insignificant. Everything that happens, happens for a reason in God's sovereign plan. Even so, did God prepare the entrance of his blessed son into the world. Jesus comes as the light, the illuminator, and he stands at the center of history. And by him, we can see clearly both ends. These opening chapters act as a link to everything that's gone before, to everything new about to happen. It binds the Old Testament age to the New Testament church age through two incredible individuals. John the Baptist will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's the Old Testament. And then we have the Messiah, the Savior of the world in Jesus combined together. The connection is there. To use the language of Hebrews 1, it connects us to the times past when God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Well, we start in verse 5. In the days of Herod. You've read those words many times before, in the days of Herod, but let's consider what it means to be in the days of Herod. History knows Herod as Herod, the so-called great, but he was anything but great. He was descended from Esau. He did not belong to the line of Jacob. That's important for us to know. It's significant. They also had not had a king since the captivity, but there was really no royalty in the title at all. He was placed there as a, a Roman vassal. He was a figurehead. He was a pawn, basically. And during that time, he had erected temples to foreign deities. All these other gods. He was debased. He was a debased king. Then we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Every direct male descendant of Aaron was a priest. Part of the priestly line. And that meant that for all ordinary purposes, we had too many priests. <laughs> Way too many priests. They were divided into 24 divisions with 18 to 20,000 priests, which is wild. We come to the New Testament and we know how the priesthood is as well. 
it's, it's debased as well. It's falling apart. It's a shell of what it once was. Lots of priests, only one temple, and the temple is still under construction. It's not even back to its former glory. Zechariah here is scarcely the first to bear that name in Israel. Scripture records 30 Zacharias before him. Kings, prophets, priests, Levites. Among the ordinary naming of children, the extraordinary breaks in once again. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. Herod was not yet born when Zechariah's parents, in faith, took their little boy the fruit of an ancient family tree going back to Aaron, cultivated, pruned by God. And they said, God will remember. God remembers. Yahweh remembers. That's his name. Not that he ever forgot, but rather that in the fullness of time, God was revealing all things. Now to another priestly family, we have a little girl that's born. A little girl, and her name is Elizabeth. And perhaps you can imagine at that time in that culture, they were a little disappointed that they had a girl. Not a boy. But they looked at this little girl and they too gave her a great name. You can hear a gasp of hope in the name Elizabeth, which means oath of God. Zachariah and Elizabeth, two ordinary people, yet names that represent faith in dark times, in the days of Herod. Now there's a problem introduced in the text in the days of Herod. Verse 7, these two devout people had no child. And that would have been hard to understand for them, for everyone else, because it was generally understood that misfortune, even barrenness, was a curse from God. It was a result of some sin and the chatter and the gossip that surrounded this seemingly righteous couple must have been severe their whole life. What secret sin did Zachariah and Elizabeth have? What was it that God would curse them this way? But Luke makes it very clear, no, both were devout and righteous and blameless. They followed God's commandments. They were true believers. We have to get back into the Jewish atmosphere of the day when we read these words. There was a tragedy in the home according to their way of thinking. And it wasn't just a cultural tragedy, but scholars say for the Jewish people, every single child that was born was a blessing. It was a heritage from God. But every single child was also the chance to be the Messiah. And so if you were barren, if you were unable to have a child and you were devout to be potentially cut off from ever being part of the Messiah's lineage, that would have been a very heart, you know, heartbreaking thing to not have the Messiah come from you and your wife. Every child born would have been a child of hope. Zachariah and his wife call our first parents of the faith to mind, Abraham and Sarah. In all of Scripture, these two couples are the only ones both childless and too old to bear children. And in only these two circumstances does God first announce the impossible birth to the Father first. Just as Abraham and Sarah introduced the covenant of grace to the earth, so now Zechariah and Elizabeth introduced the capitulation of that covenant in Christ. The mention of their age is probably just to make it very clear to us, to Theophilus, hey, this was a miracle. What's about to happen? They're not expecting a baby. Sweet Elizabeth. If only 20-year-old, 30-year-old Elizabeth could have known what God had in store for her. 
Imagine all her years of praying, those years of begging and pleading with the Lord to open her womb, praying together and praying and praying and praying, and now those days are past. They had hoped and prayed, but as ordinary things go, there was no more hope left. So Luke presents us with a graphic picture in the days of Herod. The king of the God's people is wicked and debased. The priesthood is a shell of its former self. The temple is unfinished, surrounded by temples to foreign gods. The people are there, but they're scattered. They're sheep without a shepherd. And then in the middle of this, we have two devout elderly people who cannot have a child. Ordinary things in a sinful world. Nevertheless, the continuity and sovereignty of God's plan marches on. In verse 8, Zechariah goes up with his division, which is on duty every morning, every evening. Sacrifices were to be made for the nation. And they would take a burnt offering of a male lamb, one year old, without spot or blemish. And accompanying this was incense, which was to be burned on the altar. And the idea was that the sacrifice would go up enveloped in sweet-smelling incense. Since the priests were so many, it was entirely possible you could go your entire life without ever being chosen to burn the incense. Being chosen for this would have been the greatest moment of your entire career as a priest. It was the thing you you longed for, you hoped for. Zechariah probably woke up that morning, stretched. No idea he'd done this ordinary day, many, many times ordinary work. They cast lots a hundred times, never had fallen to him. He stood unaware that his life was about to change. The entire course of history was about to change. You can imagine his excitement and thrill as they looked at him and said, Zachariah, it's you. What? His knees trembling. This old man as he walks into the holy place. And he grabs that little spoon, that little silver spoon, and he, he scoops out the dark powder of incense and Ordinary, just ordinary things. This is the way people have done it, the way God's people had done it for hundreds and hundreds of years. He had played this moment out in his mind hundreds of times before. And as he lights it, suddenly a tear in the fabric of reality opens. And an angel steps through. How did that feel? How did Zechariah respond? Could he even breathe? Dare he breathe, let alone move? How would you respond to an angel, a mighty warrior of God, appearing before you? Well, the text says he was troubled, to put it lightly. Great fear came upon him. Who could blame him? The extraordinary came like a bomb dropped onto the plane of ordinary things. And then those words come from the angel's lips. Gabriel, do not be afraid. Those words must have washed over him like cool water. Not an angel of judgment, an angel of mercy with good news. And then this immaterial being spoke his name. Zechariah, the angel said. God, God knows me? God knew, God knows me? God remembered him? Old Zechariah? His name was true. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Isn't that blessed news for us as believers? When God's mighty angels come, they always come. Do not be afraid to God's people. Do not be afraid. You see, it's God's enemies who should be afraid. 
but not his people. And then follows the promise. This childless couple past the years of having children will have a child. Angel Gabriel looks at him and says, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Who knows when Zachariah and Elizabeth had prayed that prayer for a son? I, I think I can see them as newlyweds together. You imagine those first few years on their knees, bowing before the Lord in prayer. Lord, all the children we will have, all the children you will give us. Bright-eyed, anxious, excited. And the years passed. And the years passed. And each new year passed. And a prayer for a child must have become less frequent, less enthusiastic. The wrinkles have now come. And they know how bodies work. And so they probably stopped praying altogether for that. That's no longer a possibility. In the natural, ordinary things, the answer from God was no. How many prayers, dear ones, have we prayed with the answer seemingly no? How many prayers have you prayed and you've forgotten about? How many prayers have you ceased to pray because all the natural factors of this life said, that's over. But God has not forgotten your prayers. Yahweh remembers. And though we live in the ordinary, God dwells forever in the extraordinary. Zechariah, Gabriel says, yes, you will have a son. God heard. God remembers. But not only that, this son will be a blessing not only to you and your wife. He will be a blessing to many. He will be a great son. Filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, turning the hearts of the people to their God, the spirit and power of Elijah. He will be the forerunner that the prophets spoke of. That's your boy. Zechariah, your prayer was heard. God takes our little ordinary prayers and he makes them extraordinary by his grace. Gabriel here quotes the final prophecy of Malachi. Malachi, 400 years prior where God promised to send forth Elijah. And it's significant that the angel ends, if you read that passage in Malachi, he ends not with the judgment in 4.6, but with the words of blessing and hope. In other words, John has come to restore primal things. He's come to put God's people back onto the ancient paths. The ways of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's where we're going to. 400 years of a gap, 400 years of prophetic silence, but God's work continues ever forward. Now you can imagine during that silence, during those 400 years, people saying, God has forgotten us. God has broken us down as a people. God has failed us. Even now people say, 2,000 years, God has forgotten us. God has broken us down. God has failed us. And yet here is Gabriel quoting Malachi 400 years earlier. And the message is this. God remembers his promises. Elijah is coming. The true king is coming. The temple shall be restored. The people will have a shepherd. He has not failed. The thing predicted is now coming to pass before your very eyes. The entire history of the Bible is simply this, the extraordinary touching the ordinary by God's grace. Dead men and women physically beyond the point of life, 
spiritually dead in their sins, having divine breath blasted into their nostrils in resurrection life. That's what we see time and time again. A son will be born. You prayed for him. He's coming. No son could naturally be born, and yet he will be born. Hearts of stone cannot naturally turn to hearts of flesh. We're doing that. Beloved, we must ask ourselves, where did it all begin? We read this story. Where did this story begin? Can you hear Sarah's laughter from the books of the Bible? Can you hear her laughter ringing through the page? Can you not hear the laughter of Abraham and Sarah coming forth through the centuries to our ears? Do you not wonder at the beauty of it all? Of this great snake crusher promised way back in the Garden of Eden coming to earth. It makes me want to laugh with joy. It makes me want to sing. He's promised and he's coming again. What great news. And when he comes again, it will be an ordinary day with ordinary work. And we will wake up just like Zechariah and none the wiser. But he will come. The father, Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. The mother, the oath of God. And the son, John, name, his name means God is gracious. They did not choose that name. God chose that name. God remembers his oath and he will be gracious. Beautiful. Well, in the midst of good news, Zechariah opens his mouth. (laughs) He opens his mouth. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You see, Zechariah raises the difficulty of the ordinary while he's staring at the extraordinary. He's standing before one of God's mighty warriors, and he's going to doubt God's ability to do something? Does he not know about Abraham and Sarah or of Hannah or of Rachel, these barren women who God sent forth sons? God takes dead things and brings them to life, Zechariah. He's in the business of resurrection. It's what God does. But Zechariah wanted a sign, and so the angel gives him one. He says, you will be dumb and deaf. Nine months you will not hear or speak. Nine months into yourself to ponder the works of God. And after those nine months of silence and unbelief, what does Zechariah do? He sings. He sings the the, the benedictus, the blessed song of praise. He's had nine months to write a song of praise in his heart. Yesterday I... Oh, heavens. Yesterday I officiated a wedding. I love to officiate weddings. And when you're at weddings, rings are exchanged. And a ring is a keepsake. It's a promise. It's a sign of a promise, a visible promise. I, I lost my old ring, my first ring. And it was okay. I was a little sad about it, but I got a new one. And that was okay because my wife and I were built upon the promise, not the ring itself. This was a keepsake. There are some marriages which demand a sign. Because the promise is not enough. And that's what happens in an unstable world. In the days of Herod, under a wicked son, in a sinful world, we have to have contracts sometimes and prenups. And these things go beyond faithfulness. You can't take a person at their word, so you demand a sign. And that's what Zechariah did. 
This is what we have done all of our lives to God. Rather than ask for a keepsake, we demand contracts from God. How will I know, God? What's the proof? Rather than trusting the promise, we demand a contract. And when we do this, we effectively are looking at Christ upon the cross, which is the ultimate proof of God's promise-keeping love, his covenant love for us. And we look at the cross and we say, you know, that's not enough. You've got to prove your love to us. You must go every single day. You must prove it. We demand you to prove it. Your word is not enough. That's what Zechariah did. That's what we do. And yet we've seen rainbows. How many times? How many more signs do we demand from God? It's not wrong to want evidence. Luke writes the book because somebody wanted evidence. Somebody wanted an orderly account. He wants us to have certainty. Our belief is not groundless. But there's an evil in demanding signs beyond what a humble heart should require. And the thing we learn here from Zechariah is that when we demand signs over and over and over from God, sometimes the sign given will not be a blessing, it'll be a curse. Zechariah demanded a sign, he got it. Silence. Nine months. He had his head stuck in the ordinary. I'm too old for these promises, Gabriel. Not only that, my wife's too old. Those days of dreaming, oh, they're gone, Gabriel. But Gabriel, and you can almost, I can almost sense the smirk, the, the sarcasm. Oh, nice to meet you, old man. I'm Gabriel. Let me tell you where I have been. Let me tell you about the God that I stand before. And every single word that has, he has ever uttered from his lips has come to pass. I'm Gabriel. He is a God who remembers. Now believe, Zechariah. You be silent, watch as it unfolds. Jesus says to us even now, surely I am coming soon. And what do you make of that promise this morning? Do you respond by saying, prove it? How many people on this earth respond that way? Many. Prove it. Give us a sign. And the sign for them comes as unbelief and doubt. They can never shake it. They have demanded a sign from God too many times. He's given them his word. He's given them the cross. He's given them the gospel a hundred times. And they say that's not enough. And so it comes in judgment. But if you would ask the Lord for a keepsake. If you would go before him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. You will see wonders. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. How do you respond? Yesterday, I saw the proper response. I saw the bride coming down the aisle, beautiful, adorned, gorgeous, tears in her eyes, smiling at the groom. That's our response. We wait for him to come and sweep us off our feet. Well, the people outside are waiting as well. Where's Zachariah? What's taking so long? You can hear the murmuring. Did, did God strike him dead? You know, that's happened before. And then here emerges this old man, and he is looking like he got electrocuted. Here he comes. Time for the benediction. Time for the blessing. But there is no blessing. Instead, they get a game of charades from the priest. And they decipher that he's seen a vision from the Lord. Now, there's this big, beautiful theological 
thing happening here. Luke is wanting us to have certainty. He's showing us how God works in history, how God has planned this thing from the very beginning. And Zechariah, as the priest was supposed to come out, he had the privilege to lift up his hands over the people and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And Lord, turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's the ironic blessing. But the earthly priest, the ordinary priest comes out mute because he's sinful like us. He's unable to fill, fulfill his priestly duties because of his doubts. Now, in contrast to this, we go to the end of Luke. The very end of Luke, Luke 24, 50 through 51. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Listen to the wonderful, just beauty of this. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, that's Jesus. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. We start with a priest who can't do it anymore he can't cut it because he's sinful and so he's struck mute and we end the book of luke with a great high priest who not even death could keep silent not even the grave could shut him up and he gives the once for all blessing that we need for all time and now he intercedes for us in heaven once and for all verse 23 And when his time of service was ended, Zechariah, he went home. And then what did he do? What did Zechariah do? Did he stay in unbelief and doubt? No, he believed God's promise. And we know that because after completing his duties at the temple, he went home to share the marriage bed with his wife. And that was an act of obedience. That was not some primal urge. It was an act of faith by an old believer who trusted God. Elizabeth is thinking, what has gotten into my old husband? Hope. Hope, Elizabeth. He's filled with hope. He hasn't had hope for years. Oh, and he's filled with hope. For God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary wonders. And he uses marriages and families and single people and young people and old people all to bring about his plan. It's too glorious. It's too wonderful. Verse 24, 25. Let's wrap up. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived just as God said it was going to happen. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. To take away my reproach among people. I thought about this a while. Why did Elizabeth wait? Why did she wait five months to be seen? And I think probably she waited because she wanted it to be physically obvious. She wanted the baby bump before she got out in public. The Lord had looked upon her in favor. She had spent her whole life putting up with the reproach, with the gossip from others, talking behind her back. She claims to be pious. She claims to know God. That's not the truth. That's why she's barren. And the baby bump would silence that talk. A child of hope is here. Or maybe Elizabeth worried the child wouldn't come to term. She knows about her advanced age. She knows pregnancy is dangerous. What if she comes out and she says, I'm having a baby. 
and she miscarries. And now those gossipers double their taunts. Or maybe she was simply savoring that bump for herself. Like Hannah would have to give up Samuel. She knew my boy is going to have to go. And I want five more months with my sweet little baby. Just me and him. And Zachariah can be quiet. (laughs) And it's just me and him. Oh, so sweet, the picture. You can imagine Zachariah touching the belly and smiles and the happiness. So many years of darkness being brought to light. Friends, how insignificant do you feel today? Another Christmas, another year gone, another day under the sun, another day in the day of Herod. But isn't, it isn't insignificant, is it? You are not insignificant. Your life is vast and complex and your history to bring you to this very moment, to this very pew is remarkable. How God has worked through a thousand conversations and hundreds of different people, divine preparations in your life for this moment. You are not insignificant. The flower of the church has deep roots. Goes all the way back to that promise of Abraham. And the sunshine that causes us still to grow this day is Christ. Did you think you were small in God's kingdom? Did you think that? Oh, it's silly, isn't it? Did you think you were little in the universe? You are a beloved child of God. It simply isn't so. And if you are not a believer here today, why are you spending another day in doubt and unbelief? Will you stop demanding signs from God? You have his word. And in the later days, now you have his son, Christ. On the cross. That's the proof of God's love. You could have walked into this place dead in your sins, but God is in the resurrection business. Let's pray.